You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So welcome to a special edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master along with Jason Kelly live from the red carpet at the Morgan Library and Museum in Manhattan. We made our way down for Bloomberg did. World Headquarters. A little rainy out. It's a little rainy here in New York City, but it is buzzing already. This is going to be quite a night. Yeah, quite a night. And what I love about this event, it's the third annual Bloomberg 50, and it's a celebration of the 50 people in business, entertainment, finance, politics, technology, science. And what I love about this, you and I have been talking about this a lot with this issue, is that people who stand out in measurable ways. That's right. Well, it's Bloomberg after all, and so there's got to be a data point. There's one guy who has to put all of that <laughs> together and fault him every week to put this magazine out. Joel Weber, he is our host, our co-host, I guess, uh, this evening. Uh, he's here with he's us right nodding, now. He's nodding, yes. He's co definitely our co-host. Yeah. yeah, there you Wing go. Man, that's good, too. Yeah, yeah exactly. all of the above. So it's a team sport. It's not just me. Um, there's a guy named Brett Began who actually slaves away at this thing for weeks after weeks after a week to get get to a point where we can actually have tonight and have people that we can celebrate. So it's big team sport, and it's even bigger than Brett because we reach out throughout the newsroom to all of the 2,700 journalists and analysts within Bloomberg to make sure that we can have a list that actually really represents sort of the zeitgeist of the year. What's really cool, too, is you guys start early in the year, right? From what I understand, like back in the spring. Yeah, well, I mean, and we try and count for the whole year. So it, yeah. it, it's really a chance to recognize even things that happen in January and February we're kind of taking into account. And so when you sort of set this in motion in a year like this, how do you pick out the themes? I mean, how do you sort of break it down? So you, it's a it's a evolving process yeah. um, and it goes up until the last minute, right? But things start to stand out over the course of the year, whether it's a deal that, um, especially in the oil M&A was one that really jumped out at us this year. Like yeah. that, that, that kind of distinguishes stuff. And then you kind of like give it a little time and you come back to it and say, did that thing hold up or was it an anomaly? Right. Or did something else happen that got bigger than that, right? Or was it just like, you know, we, we, have, we have a lot of people on the list. We also have a chicken sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> and it broke, you know, this is a Popeye's chicken sandwich that broke the internet is yeah. what, what we realized. They had a three-month supply run out in a matter of days. It's crazy. And, you know, like something like that, it's just like, even if you're like business executive who dreams this up, you have no idea that it's going to like take off quite like that, right. right? And so we build into the process that there's opportunities to just embrace things that are slightly outside of our, our usual place. And I love folks like Kylie Jenner, right, who yeah. are on the list for a couple of things that they did. A couple things, and, you know, that's it's uh, it's a big money, the self-made billionaire, Gen yeah. Z's first billionaire. Yeah. Um, it, it's... It's an amazing accomplishment, and that's why we do this, be able to recognize some of these people. All right. Well, we know it's a super busy night for you. We will see you on stage. What please. a venue. Yeah, uh, it's no. amazing. It's an amazing very space. Very yeah. beautiful. All right. It's going to be very exciting. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great. Right. Really appreciate it. It's been quite a year. And if you think about some of the stories that have been out there, whether it's politics, whether it's technology, and what I love about this list, Jason, is it's a lot of household names. Yep, yep. They're there. But then there are folks that you might not know their name, but you should, whether it's MMT. You know, I think about um, Stephanie Kelton. Stephanie yeah. Kelton. Oh We're going to talk to her a little yeah. bit later, but I think that has become a big discussion when it comes to what's going on in the economy and certainly on the campaign trail. And then I just think about so many other 
issues. And as a matter of fact, we have a guest who's getting settled in. We just caught up with him uh, a little while ago, a couple of weeks ago. Um, but we want to talk about the cannabis industry, right. which was a big story in 2018, no doubt about it. But there was a lot more focus, I felt like, on some of the Canadian cannabis companies. And now we're really focusing a lot more on the U.S. company because our next guest is from Cureleaf, and he turned this into one of the world's most valuable cannabis companies. It's the biggest U.S. marijuana company by market value. We're talking about $2.8 billion. Right. He is Boris Jordan. He's here with us. Congratulations on Thank the Bloomberg you. 50. It seems like just a few weeks ago you were with us uh, in studio. It's great to catch up. I know. This is Good a much nicer venue. I mean, our studio is nice, but <laughs> this is a lot nicer. We generally don't serve booze, but, you know, here well, we are. We do on Fridays. But. Uh, so why do you think... Uh, why do you think you made this list? You know, I was surprised. Yeah. I'll be very honest with you. I've uh, in the past made some lists. Uh, <laughs> I, I opened up the Russian uh, privatization market, and uh, I was on this Global Leaders of Tomorrow. But the last thing I thought I'd make is a cannabis uh, company listing, a Bloomberg 50 for cannabis. Um, I think what's great about it is that it, it sort of reflects the fact that people are starting to accept the fact that cannabis is going to be a part of our lives in the United States. We have 33 states that are that, that have legalized cannabis in one form or another. Uh, more and more people are using it. And the fact that Bloomberg has recognized that, I think, is a big deal. And it shows that it's becoming mainstream. Well, Boris, and I do think about, you know, for a while we just talked about the Canadian cannabis companies. And I do feel like 2019 was a lot more about the U.S. companies and yours included. Um, what do you think 2020 is going to be when it comes to the cannabis story? We, we are waiting for, you know, regulations to come out from the government, you know. So I'm just curious what you think will be coming well, if in we 2020. Well, can get over it, impeachment, um, <laughs> which I hope we will at some point in time. I, th I think it's going to be a continuation of the U.S. story. And that's not to say anything negative about Canada, but it's just a bigger market. The U.S. companies are all turning profitable. Um, you're starting to see more and more of them. I think the numbers that are going to be put up by U.S. companies next year are going to be quite big and staggering. And I think that will get recognized not only uh, you know, by Washington, but I think also by the markets at large. And right. I think you know, large, the mainstream investors have largely avoided right. uh, cannabis until this to, to today. And I think you're going to start seeing a lot more of them get involved as they see these companies start to put up significant numbers. Well, and talk to us about sort of the big companies getting involved, because there have been some twists and turns, shall we say, with some of the bigger U.S. companies sort of dipping their toe in, some making some investments. I'm thinking of Constellation, obviously. Uh, how does this sort of consumer packaged goods market get more involved in this? How important is it that they get involved in order to grow this business in a meaningful way? I think they're all going to get involved. For instance, Cureleaf just this evening on, on Bloomberg announced that we, we hired um, uh, Joe Byron, who ran uh, uh, Dr. Pepler uh, Snapple. He built uh, Voss Water. Before that, he was uh, at uh, um, uh, Seagram's company. So He's a real guy. These are guys that are built and run very big CPG businesses that understand brands and understand supply chain. And you're starting to see more and more of those people enter this market. And I think that's the first sign. Um, and the reason they're coming before the big companies is because we're still federally legal. Yeah. But I think you're going to get two pieces of legislation in 2020. I think you're going to get the Safe Banking Act, and I think you will get the States Act. Once you get the States Act is when you're going to start seeing some of the big 
multinationals really starting to take a hard look at cannabis because it just fits so well with every one of their other products that they sell today, whether it be you know beverages or food or, or add, uh, different additives. And the pharma companies are going to be the last because they're really waiting for synthetic cannabis. Mm. Once you get synthetic cannabis, you'll start to see the pharma companies get involved as well. So what does that mean for your financial model next year? If we get those two pieces of legislation, that sounds like it's a game changer and that the numbers just start to take it's off. Is that true? It's a game changer in terms of the amount of the, the cost of cash capital for our company, yeah. but it's not really a game changer to the industry because the industry, I mean, to be honest, we can, I mean, we're growing at 300% a year. I mean, we're going to grow from this year from 300 million of revenue then, to over a billion. But then you can work across states, right? You then don't have to we, build out each no, state no, individually. No, no, the States Act won't allow you to it do will. that. It will. No. So you still, you still have to still deal with that. You're still going to be siloed in okay. states, but you will have a federal law okay. that allows investors to invest in the sector, but you'll still be siloed. All right. And it's kind of, to be honest, like gambling. Right. In the U.S., right. right? So you can't go cross-border, cross-state lines on gambling in the United States. You have to be siloed in the state that you're in. It's state-regulated, but it's not federally right. legal. All right. got to leave it there. Boris Jordan, thank you so much for dropping by here. again. And congratulations. You yeah. bet. Boris Have a good Jordan, time tonight. Executive Chairman of Leaf Holdings, uh, of course, based in Wakefield, Massachusetts, here at the Bloomberg 50 Celebration. Right. And I do think, you know, we were talking with Joel about sort of the big themes of the year. Yeah. And you said it. You know, 2018, we would have said cannabis, huge. And by the way, it was last yeah. year. If you remember, Bruce Linton was on this list. That's right. Uh, he had an inauspicious, I wasn't going to bring that up with Boris, but uh, he had an inauspicious sort of departure right. uh, from his company. This is a volatile industry. We'll see where it goes. But those two pieces of legislation, as he mentioned, that could really change everything. Well, it gives it legitimacy and in terms of kind of taking away some of the questions that are out there. And I think that spooks investors to some extent and certainly keeps some of the bigger players away from getting involved because they need they need to know what the rules are with this. Well, and keying off of what he said about them, you know, hiring a big name I think from CPG. Well, I don't know if you saw this. This crossed late in the day during our radio show. Cure, um, not Cure Leaf, uh, Canopy, which Bruce Linton left, right. they have now hired the former CFO of Constellation to come in and be the CEO. Well, it, remi- it what it is is a reminder that this is about being a brand and developing a brand, right? Yeah. Just like any other consumer product, and so it takes you there. So certainly cannabis, one of the, um, and Bruce, um, and Boris rather, recognized on the Bloomberg 50 also this year in terms of Bloomberg 50, and this plays a little bit more into what we've heard on the political campaign trails. Right, right, yeah. And we've heard a lot about, you know, what's happening when it comes to the relationship between business, between politics, and the Federal Reserve. Correct. We talk a lot about fiscal policy. We also talk a lot about monetary policy. We hear about it from politicians. Yes. I think in a way that we traditionally have not. Let's be honest. Yeah, this is turning things upside down. And I feel like, you know, you're pretty cool if you can talk about MMT, modern um, monetary theory, because it's certainly something that Bernie Sanders has talked about. And, you know, it really plays into and goes against, for those of us who've studied economics, um, it really goes against this whole idea of you can't just print money to pay for things. Right. And yet this theory turns it all upside down. And we have the perfect person to talk about it. Uh, joining us, and she's recognized among the Bloomberg 50, is Stephanie Kelton, economist, professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And she's got an upcoming book. It's called The Deficit Myth. And we want to get into it. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much. <laughs> we got your mic all set. <laughs> More or less than we do. We can yeah. hear you. So tell us a little bit about um, this year and just 
so many people talking about MMT. If you Google it, it comes up yeah. a million times and many times over. So what do you make of kind of the popularity of MMT? I mean, there, it is kind of astonishing, right? That I think in a lot of ways what's happening is that people are coming to some sort of terms with the idea that when the next downturn comes, um, policymakers aren't going to be able to reach for the usual toolkit right. and do what they've done in the past, that we're going to have to start thinking maybe more creatively, more ambitiously about what policymakers can do in response to a, a growing weakness in the economy. And I think um, for many people, MMT is just increasingly viewed as that alternative that can help us to... Um, you know, think about ways to to be more ambitious when so we don't have to suffer that. the kind of long, protracted recession that we had right. last time. Right. And so, Stephanie, were you surprised that this was a year where a lot of people from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to Bernie Sanders, who Carol mentioned, you know, they introduced it. We talk about the Overton window all the time, yeah. right? You know, that this sort of moved in MMT's favor I love in when many you say ways. Overton window. It makes me so proud. It makes me so... I love the idea of moving windows, doors, yeah, exactly, doors right. exactly. flying off hinges. Um, but it was a moment, you know, yeah. and obviously yeah. it entered into the political and, and I dare say even at least the mainstream business zeitgeist, to quote our colleague yeah. Tom Keen. Were you surprised? I mean... Yes and no. You know, I mean, if you've been pushing hard to get that breakthrough moment for a set of ideas and right. you've really worked as a scholar and as an academic and with a number of other people as well. I mean, this is a team effort. And, you know, we put uh, heart and soul into this project for more than two decades now. And so at some point you do expect it to pay <laughs> off, I, I guess, you know. Um, but then when you have that moment and you have politicians of the type that you're talking about giving some oxygen to these ideas, it really is remarkable. Tell us, though, because for everyone like a Bernie Sanders and some other individuals, high profile, who are supporting him, and to you know you've had a lot of high profile names. I know Paul Krugman, you've had a little bit of a battle, you know, certainly a war of words. Um, I'm curious if you're having more and more conversations with more folks that maybe were against it that are starting to say, hey, you've got an idea here. Yeah, I mean, so for me, some of the most fun conversations and communications I have are those that aren't public. It's the people who reach out to me privately and, you know, were it known who these people are, I think the shockwaves would reverberate <laughs> in, in a much more dramatic fashion. But it's just encouraging to know that there are people who are really out there willing to take the scholarship seriously, right. ask questions when they're not sure, um, you know, do the ideas justice and not sort of caricature them and, and create a, an, an atmosphere of fear and concern where these are really just, I think, very sensible and sound economic principles. Remind our, remind our world, I mean, I know our audience knows, but MMT is essentially a government in their own currency can just print the money they need, correct? Well, so I never use those words because <laughs> it's okay. I, everybody everybody so, in so, the journalist world does. But, but it's... Yeah. So it's, the idea is fairly simple. It's that in countries like the U.S. that issue their own currency that's not tethered to gold or 
convertible into anything else, that the, the rules are just different for a currency issuing government as opposed to, you know, somebody in the Eurozone, Greece right. or Italy or Spain that now borrows in a currency that they don't control. It's certainly different from a household or an individual business that has to spend in a currency that it can't issue. So it does free up some policy space. And what MMT is trying to remind us is we're not on a gold standard anymore. Right. We're not in a fixed exchange rate world. So let's recognize that and let's try to take full advantage of the policy space that's available to us. It's not a free lunch. It's not a carte blanche. You can go out and spend. You can't be uh, reckless. Every, yeah, still. you can't. You're still supposed to make wise investments, be judicious with the public purse, but recognize there is a difference between the issuer of the currency and what we would say are the users of currency. The government's not like a household, but we continue to have debates and policy mm -hmm. conversations that are rooted in this old thinking of the federal government as if it's got to play by the same set of rules that you and I have to play by. And that's just not right. So I got to ask you before we let you go, sort of looking ahead a bit, all the attention that's been paid to you and to, and to MMT, do you feel like there is a wellspring of sorts of new scholarship that's coming up? Are you hearing sort of students, grad students and others sort of coalesce around this a little bit because often that's what it takes for an idea to move even further into the mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I taught at the University of Missouri in Kansas City for 17 years. I'm now at Stony Brook yeah. University here on Long Island, but we had one of the largest graduate programs, PhD programs in the entire uh, university. Right. There are universities training students. Our students are now out chairing their own economics departments. I just saw a university on the East Coast advertising for a faculty position where they say what we're looking for is someone who can teach MMT. No uh, way. So they're actually hiring. That must be such that. a yeah, problem. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it you, absolutely right? is. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. All right. Stephanie Kelton, economist, MMT advocate, and honoree here at the Bloomberg 50. And our upcoming book, The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy, is going to be released, I think, Thanks. June of 2020? June 9th. All right. All right. Thank, Thank you so to much. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thanks, Thanks for both. rolling with all really of our uh, craziness here. <laughs> You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master along with Jason Kelly. We're live at the Morgan Library and Museum uh, here in New York City. And we are celebrating um, some of the 50 names. Yeah. And we are going to be followed by a dinner where we will honor and talk about uh, more of them. But we're going to interview a few more. What I love about Stephanie Kelton is I think we're in this environment. And I think it's very telling on a day where we talked a lot about Paul Volcker, former um, head of the Federal Reserve, and someone who did some really brave things when inflation was out of control. And I do think we're in this interesting environment, low-rate environment. Everyone's trying to make sense of it. And then maybe we need to have some new theories and maybe think about things a little bit differently. And so I think um, it's fascinating to be able to have some get some time with her because I do think we need to introduce some new theories to figure out you know, kind of how do we maybe, you know, get some more growth or how, you know, how can we do some things within the government um, responsibly, as she said. It's not just runaway spending, but maybe we need some new theories in order to do some things. I also, I mean, getting past the economics part of it, I love the idea of someone sort of toiling away on something for two decades that they deeply believe time. in. Uh, you know, she obviously came up through the economic system, the university system, and now she's uh, she's having a moment. But what was clear from that conversation is 
that moment's going to continue because now there's this whole category of yes. economists who are being trained around this. Well, you think about it, right? There's going out around the, uh, around the country or around the world in terms of our students. All right, we want to shift gears a little bit because our next guest from the Bloomberg 50 Red Carpet is bringing banking services to customers across Africa. We're so delighted to have with us uh, James Morwangi. He is the CEO of Equity Group Holdings um, Bank Kenya and so delighted to have you here. Welcome and congratulations. Thank you for having me here. So 35 years in, and I know I was watching a bunch of videos and kind of prepping, we both were, and I mean, it wasn't easy when you guys began, right? I mean, you were losing money. It was not easy. You've come a long way. Tell us a little bit about, about kind of that process. Yeah, the first 10 years were very difficult. Uh, we couldn't break even, so we became technically insolvent uh, by the seventh year. Not good, yeah. Not, that's a tough track, right? For very them. tough track record where um, the losses we had accumulated were 30 times the capital we started with. But essentially, we developed a business model that was appropriate uh, for the individual entrepreneur. And we became a bank for the small, micro, and medium enterprises. And essentially, uh, the model resonated with uh, uh, the entrepreneur so well that uh, now we are the largest bank in Nairobi Stock Exchange in terms of market cap and the largest bank in Eastern and Central Africa and with 16 million customers 16 million. and nine countries. And so when you think about your customer, help us understand who they are. You, you, know, you described their size, but are they in all types of businesses? And as you look down, down the list, what are the fastest growing areas that you see? Yeah, we are a very inclusive bank because uh, people graduate up. They may start okay. very micro, they become small, they become medium, they become a large enterprise. The same with individuals. They start uh, occasionally as peace and farmers, they become agro businesses, and the individual as well being continues to grow. But the biggest growing segment uh, is the medium enterprises. Okay. That's where you find the scale, size is becoming really uh, significant. And it's because they populate the value chains of the corporates that operate in the continent. And uh, consequently, they now become uh, the face of African, uh, Africans in entrepreneurship. I have to say, James, what I love about this, and I remember talking to Muhammad Yunus about microloans and what you could do with a small amount of money, the impact you could have on a family. And I think about what you're doing, multiply it many times over, that allows people to have a financial identity, create a means for themselves and their family, and then even kind of work up the value chain. It's pretty remarkable. And it impacts the country that they're in as well. That's true, because the African... Um entrepreneurship uh, or capitalism in Africa is at the individual level yeah. the entrepreneur level right. and that individual supports uh, the immediate family and sometimes the extended family so when they start the small enterprise they provide the jobs for the entire family they take uh, care of the education of the entire family and essentially they become a catalyst so small loans have very significant impact because of uh, the individual capitalism. Africa is not corporatized, right. so we don't have huge corporate. It's the small businesses that aggregate to the African economies. So speaking of the African economies, <clears throat> excuse me, let's talk about Kenya because an ambitious plan underway, mm -hmm. you're an architect of it. Kenya, uh, Kenya's Vision 2030, uh, I believe it's called Vision 2030, 
tell us what's underneath that because the ambition is huge. Uh, Vision 2030 is a long-term strategic plan uh, to, trans to see Kenya transformed from a least developed uh, country to a middle-income economy. I've been the chairman of Vision 2030 now for the last uh, 13 years. Right. And we have seen the economy move from a 10 billion US dollar uh, size economy to 100 billion dollars, growing 10 times uh, within a period of 13 years. In the process, we have created numerous jobs, thousands of jobs for young people, because the country is very young with a mean age of 18 years. So the need for jobs is enormous. But more importantly, we have seen the law the private sector uh, have played. And that is where equity have played a very significant role uh, in providing credit, uh, financial or support. But more importantly, the foundation provides ca uh, capacity building. We do financial literacy, we do entrepreneurship mm -hmm. tra training. And so once you combine credit and competence and capacity, we see the economy being moved. And in the process, Kenya has be, uh, have moved now to position five in the, the continent from position 16 That's within remarkable. that period. What was interesting, because you started this, I think, around 2008, which I think was an interesting time, obviously, around the world, a tough time. But it's fascinating kind of some of the things that you've done, like a, a fiber optic cable project. But you also had to deal with governance and rule of law. I mean, you had to get some basic things in place to be able to grow this, right, and, 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 and kind of grow the businesses. Yes, we broke the, uh, the aspiration of the people into three. The first one was governance. Get it light in the way we are governed and uh, law, as a people. Right? Yeah. And uh, get transparency, get accountability, and get a structure of governance that is reliable and predictable. The second one was look at the economy and enable the private sector. Invest in uh, fiber optic, invest in loads, power, railways, airports, and ports, so right. that uh, the cost of doing business uh, is reduced and private sector is facilitated. We called all that enablement uh, of the private sector. So massive investment in, uh, and then the last one was invest in the social uh, aspects of the people. Mm. Focus on education. We started with free primary education, that now it's free uh, day school education and on all the way to university. And we now have 100% um, transition from primary to secondary education. So you keep children to school right. Right. for at least 18 years. And when you think about sort of the future, part of it is creating these financial hubs like Dubai uh, is a great uh, example of something that really came to the fore pretty quickly that really galvanizes people. It's a transportation hub, it's an economic hub, it's a financial hub. Do you have that same vision? Uh, truly, uh, the aspiration of the vision was to make Nairobi a financial sector. Kenya is not endowed with natural resources right. or minerals. So we focused on people and said, what would people be good at? And we focused on services. So you find Kenya is the hub for uh, banking, insurance companies, telecommunication, health, and education. Right. So essentially, that's what we did uh, then said the financial services will be an enabler in the whole region. 
it will be uh, we needed to grow the banks to the size so that they can support the aspirations and the dreams of the people uh, because people have very strong dreams but most of these dreams never come true because there is no enablement from a financial perspective right. and equity has played a very significant role and supported that with the foundation so when it comes to like for instance to agriculture uh, a lot of uh, farmers are supported to become agro businesses mm. so you stop growing for the family you grow for the market uh, place uh, but that practices needs to change so that's where the bank then uh, support and essentially then you have the entire legion and you are able then to uh, finance uh, infrastructure projects you're able to cross border businesses and so it becomes an integrated mm -hmm. uh, east african community and the wider commerce uh, legion that was the essence yeah. of making nairobi a financial center and equity has really played a very big role it's now a two billion market cap uh, bank within that uh, setup. It's pretty remarkable. Um, great to have you here with us. Thank you so much and congratulations on being part of the Bloomberg 50. You're most welcome. Thank it's you very really much. It's really impressive the work you're doing. James Mwangi, he is the CEO of Equity Group Holdings, joining us here at the Morgan Library. It's really fascinating. And this is what I love about this list, right. is you really get a window open. And this is what Bloomberg Business Week is known for, is taking us around the globe, looking at activities and work that's being done um, to help different folks um, in different countries. And it's well, and, and I really like some of the superlatives that he helped us understand there in terms of growth, because obviously you're in a situation uh, where things have happened very fast. The scale uh, is tremendous and the ambition as well. Well, and I, I've always loved this whole idea. Mohammed Yunus of the Grameen Bank created the microloans and was doing it around the world, giving someone like 50 bucks or 20 bucks to start a business. It was often women. And as a result, they often paid it back pretty quickly and they were able to make a living to support their family and just better their family. Uh, and so it's really fascinating uh, to see more of this work going on. So um, people are milling around us. Uh, it's a I little love this crazy, whole scene. It's active. good. You know, you, people sort of roll in. They see our TV set, our TV radio set. We've got a beautiful room sort of just behind where our guests are, are Greta seated. Greta Thunberg, another one of the Bloomberg 50. Uh, she's out there on the screen. Uh, uh, she didn't take a boat over. Somewhere. Yeah, exactly. She's <laughs> taking a boat somewhere uh, right now. But there will be cocktails. There will be an after party. You know, I mean, it's Monday in New York City. Why wouldn't we do this? Exactly. A rainy right? Monday. So why not rainy be Monday. here? Just tuck in, uh, you know, and maybe if you're tucking in or you're on your way home, I know this is what I'm going to do when I finally get in a car later. I'm definitely turning on a podcast. I was just going to say, you are our podcast guy. You're always like, did you listen to this? Did you listen to this? And we've got the next, the perfect guest to talk about. We this. do. I mean, and it's really exciting because this is an area of the market. I actually listened to an interview with these uh, two guys on a, a rival network, another podcast, um, and <laughs> it told the whole story. They're going to leave of, if you don't. <laughs> I know. We're going to bring him in now. Let's bring in Alex Bloomberg. Uh, of course, no relation to Bloomberg Business Week. We just want to put that out. Matt Lieber, uh, co-founders of Gimlet uh, Media. It's a company that they sold to Spotify for, I think, $230 million. Did I get the number right? Uh, we're, That's we're, what's been reported. <laughs> <laughs> reported 
could, exactly. you could make some news here. Um, anyway, it was the biggest deal in podcast uh, in the podcast industry. So nice to have you both here. Congratulations nice here. on being named Bloomberg 50. Because we, I mean, Jason does love podcasts. We all do. Um, tell us a little bit about the podcast world. And I mean, I feel like everybody does a podcast. How do you like distinguish yourself? But you saw it before anybody. I mean, yeah. you, you really did for most people. Well, I, I think Matt and I were. We started the company in 2014. Uh, and and uh, we were both sort of coming at it from separate uh, perspectives. I was uh, I was working in podcasting already. I worked at This American Life, and I had uh, started uh, Planet Money with my co-founder Adam Davidson. Right. And so I was seeing sort of like this excitement building around this new on-demand way that like audio was getting delivered to people. And I just saw the excitement building, and I was like, we just somebody should make more of these. And then Matt had a uh, was like in the, on the other side of the sort of like. Uh, uh, of the of the of the scene, looking and seeing the same sort of thing. Is he that was, true, uh, Matt? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think our insight was that if you look over the whole history of media, every time a new medium comes about, new a new media company gets built. Yeah. And so a hundred years ago, the new medium was radio, and that's when CBS got built, and that's when NBC got built, and we felt on-demand digital audio podcasts were a new medium. And we wanted to build a defining brand for this new medium, and that was Gimlet. But isn't it fascinating because it is like radio in terms of, you know, just listening to a great story being told. And I just think the simple part, it's just such a simple thing, but it's great, but it harkens back to radio, well, right? It or harkens even further back to that. I mean, I think what, if you think about, like, what we're doing in podcasts, a lot of times what we're doing is, the, is, is one of the oldest forms of media in human existence is telling stories to yeah. one another. Right, right. And we've been telling stories to one another before there was any other media available. We, like, many of the oldest stories in, in human history were oral stories before they were ever written down. They were, they were telling them before human language was even, written language was invented. And so it's very deep and very primal. And, uh, and I think that was one of the issues when we were sort of like first starting this company. Everyone was like, but it's just talking, right? And we we're yeah. like, no, no, no. But it's also on the backs of this new, of, of new technology and, and all these new tools that we bring to it. And so where are we sort of in, in the evolution here? Because you guys, as we said, we're early. A lot of people have sort of piled in. It feels like, I mean, we have a podcast. Everybody has, a, like, you know, everybody standing around is probably uh, has a podcast. Like, where, where does it go next, Matt? We think we're just at the very beginning. And the, the, the term that um, I think you, you, you've been using is that we're at the dawn of the second golden age of audio. The first golden yeah. age of audio was in the 1930s and 1940s. It was when broadcast news was born. It was when you saw fiction, like The Shadow with Orson Welles come right. about. And now, and you know, audio hasn't evolved that much in the last 60, 70 years until now. And now what you have are a couple of big technology changes. So you have smartphones in every pocket. You have connected cars coming online. A lot of listening happens in the cars. And you've got smart home devices that people are listening at home and even talking to their dashboard when they're in their car. And so all these things have combined for this whole new um, listening kinds of listening experiences to come out and new sorts of storytelling. So there's a whole generation of creators being born now to work for this medium. It's a more intimate, it's like radio, but it's yeah. more intimate. Right. Um, there is something about putting on your headphones or something yeah. and just kind of going yeah, into your world. Yeah, and when you listen to a podcast, it feels like you're listening to your best friend hang out with you or tell you a story that's just made for you. Yeah. But as Jason, well, as you mentioned, everybody's got a podcast. What is it that makes a podcast stand out? Well, because uh, there's mean, so much content out there. 
Yeah. I mean, if we told you that, then you would just start your own. No. <laughs> well, actually. We're not going to reveal yeah. our secrets yeah. here. Uh, is it no, just a I, great story? I mean, you're asking the question that is at the heart of every content company, which is like, yeah. what do people want? Yeah. Right. And, uh, and, 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 and the, the, the scary truth is that, like, that is an essential mystery. We can do our best, and we have been very successful so far, and we will continue to be successful at, like, eventually, you know, getting that right a bunch of times. But it's, like, it's, it's really hard. I think the thing that, like, is true about uh, audio, though, is that it prizes two things above everything else. Like, there's a very simple way that it is uh, just, it, it, it thrives on narrative. And so if you can just tell a simple story, like just, for example, if I say to you, I got up this morning, I looked out the window, and then I stopped. You're like, well, wait, what happened? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And all I did was say two sentences to you, right. and all of a sudden you want to listen to the third one. There's something, that, there's something that deep in in terms of like hearing a story that people it really grips you. So that's I think that is one of the key things that audio can deliver. And if you get that right over time, right, that's what people want to listen to. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the business side of all of this because storytelling's great. We all love telling stories. <laughs> we like listening to them. We like telling them. We certainly like uh, hearing ourselves talk because we do it for hours a day every day. But you guys figured out a way to make a real business uh, out of this, something that Spotify was able to and willing to pay you a lot of money for. Clearly, they see a business here. How does distribution ultimately work in a profitable way? Matt? Um, yeah, that's a good that's a good question. We um, we did build a business here, and so Sp Gimlet is um, it was mainly an advertising business. It turns out podcasting, this intimacy that happens in audio, makes it great for storytelling. It also makes it great for advertising, and we're reaching a very unique consumer. They tend to be younger, more affluent, more educated, and they're very hard to reach. Our name for them is the Unreachables, and we're getting them with this very um, direct personal kind of ad product that really worked for us. And so, so we built a business around that. Um, and then about a year ago, we, we started having more serious conversations with Spotify. And in Spotify, we saw a really a global giant um, music company that you know today reaches over a quarter billion listeners around the world every month. Um, and in that, we saw distribution. We yeah. saw the opportunity to take Gimlet and reach a global audience. We thought that together we could solve what is one of the fundamental problems for the medium and also for the business, which is discovery. So if you ask, um, if you ask people uh, what podcast they listen to and how they found out, they're still basically finding out because their friend told them. Right. They may have read it in media, but the kind of discovery that Spotify has unlocked to tell you about the right song, the right album, the right playlist, we thought that could work for podcasts too, and in doing so, get to many, many more people. Does it continue to be an advertising model that gets it to profitability? Can you say it again? Does, is, it, is it still an advertising model that gets podcasts to profitability? Um, Sorry, today, I talk fast. No, it's, it's, it, I'm it's actually also not, loud. Ironically, I'm not getting your audio in my oh, ear. So I'm kind of reading your lips right now. Okay. Um, well uh, done. Yes, yeah. yeah today, podcasts are mainly an, an, uh, uh, an advertising business. Does it continue to be that way? Um, I think the there's going to be. I think yeah. there's going to be other all, all kinds of other forms yeah. of monetization. And Spotify is primarily a subscription business. Right. The vast majority of Spotify's revenue comes in the form of paying subscribers. And um, we think we're going to unlock new monetization models for, for podcasts that will realize the true value of the medium. 
All right, so I have to ask you, knowing your story, knowing that you both worked in public radio, like public radio <laughs> people who you know must be, like, they're happy-ish for you, right? <laughs> I mean, in the sense that, like, they're happy for they, them. they, like, slave away, like, here they are, they're like, and, like, you guys go and create this, like, juggernaut. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think, <laughs> I, so I think, I think it was, like, a pretty big, uh, a pretty big shock in the industry when the sale happened, I think just because like, you know, it was like, it made real this thing that up until that point had not, had just been sort of theoretical. Yeah. And so anytime, anytime, even if people were, I think, you know, we know lots of people in the industry. Many of my closest friends are in public radio, uh, and and I'm still very very tight with everybody. And so everybody knew what was happening. They were excited. They were rooting for us. Yeah, yeah, right. I think mostly. Uh, but it's like, yeah, it's a big shock when that when that thing happens, and it's like, and you're like, wow, there they were is like, Alex this thing. Matt, why the, didn't you like cut me in yeah. a little bit? <laughs> no, they're just making sure you're buying drinks, right? Yes. But the thing that I think it was, um, I think it was like what was gratifying, I think, for all of us in there is that it really we were slaving away doing this thing that we saw value in like we believed in this like product that we we're making right. and what the sale did was it legitimized that yeah. value that we saw in it for everybody and i think that's a great thing for the entire it's industry. a huge thing i mean yeah. I, it was a i mean i think when we look back huge. on it and one of the reasons you're on the bloomberg 50 is it was a seminal moment you know in, in a lot of ways of saying because i think a lot of people who had dabbled in this were like yeah you know i sold an ad to whoever and uh -huh. like it's barely covering my costs. Like this is something that that really legitimized it in, in a really big way. So yeah. what's 2020 for podcasts and for you guys? 2020 is just bl blowing up even more. Like it's just like I think what we're gonna see is we're gonna see lots and lots of new forms, lots and lots of new formats, lots of new people coming into into podcasting that haven't been here before. Um, more bigger, better, more creative, more exciting stuff, more stuff that we haven't imagined. Do the elections kind of make it an interesting year? In terms of content? Yeah, I mean... Do you guys think about that? Well, yeah, I mean, we're storytellers, and this is the biggest story out there. <laughs> the biggest story ever. <laughs> so, yes. so kind of excited? Absolutely, yeah. No, it's super exciting. And and, and the way, and how, how you cover that, you know, in all the different ways that we're thinking about covering it, we're excited. Yeah. Who right. doesn't want to give away too many secrets? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I like I don't it. Play all me. right. Alex Bloomberg yeah. and Matt Lieber, thank you so much. Congratulations on the Bloomberg 50. Congratulations on the deal. Very cool uh, stuff. Certainly watch this space. Thank, thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks. Congratulations. All right. So yeah. podcast, yeah, certainly a big thing. And I, I think obsessed. about. I'm obsessed with these. Guys. I know you are. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it's so interesting to see that story. And like uh, Alex was talking about, like it legitimized in, in so many ways this yeah. business. And you do think about these seminal moments in media, and that certainly was one. But I guess what I think is interesting, and and you're listening to, of course, Bloomberg Business Week, um, a special edition. We are live from the Bloomberg 50 at the Morgan Library and Museum. I'm Carol Master, along with Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. But I think what's also interesting about it, and I guess what I was trying to get to is, you're right, everybody's got a podcast, but there's something about the work that they've done that really stands out, that gets noticed. And that whole idea of really great storytelling. And sometimes it's got a lot of bells and whistles, yeah. and sometimes it's and sometimes just very it's just straight. pure. Well, and, and one of the things we didn't get to talk about, which I'm sure you know, is that like they there's this whole meta element to this where you and I were they, talking about Earlier. They had their own podcast called about Startup that, a business. that built their business, and it was all about that. And this window in uh, was fascinating, and right. it, it was a very, it was a very real story. And you know, Alex Bloomberg uh, worked at This American Life. I mean, and his story is pretty amazing. He sort of came up uh, through the administrate, like he, he was literally like the office manager 
for uh, for This American Life and then became a producer. And it was so it's pretty remarkable what they built. You know, two guys out of public radio, you know, creating something uh, that was pretty amazing. Well, we are here at the Bloomberg 50. Yes, we are. Uh, and it is bumping. It's People are crazy. starting to show up. I keep hearing things dropping behind me. I, yeah, I, I hear it's you <laughs> dropping things. Is that not you? you? No, I don't think it was this oh, time. okay. Interesting. Alright, so listen, our next guest, it might not have been her plan initially, that is creating a supply chain technology company, but after a trip to Bangkok, she started Zalingo. It's a direct-to-consumer fashion marketplace, but it went to become a lot more to its merchants. We're talking about Ankiti Bose. She is the co-founder and the CEO of Zilingo. Do Are I have that right? Are we saying it right? Zilingo. 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 There we go. Oh, you <laughs> okay. said it right. I said it wrong. Uh, there you go. Leave it to the women That's to get it right. That's usually how it happens. Is I sort <laughs> yes. of like muddle my way through it and then Carol comes in and saves the day. Anyway, uh, great to have you with us. Congratulations on Thank the you. Bloomberg 50. Tell us about Zilingo. So, uh, you know, everybody wears clothes. And uh, um, the apparel industry, uh, the apparel and textile industry is almost 5% of global GDP. So it's huge. Yeah. Uh, but despite that, very little digitization, very little technology has really touched the entire industry. Which is remarkable. Which is, which is remarkable, exactly. So unlike pharmaceuticals, industrials, uh, the way your iPhone is made, unlike any of that, uh, there is very little traceability, um, sustainability, technology, or really any amount of transparency in the supply chain in apparel. And and that leads to all these problems that you hear of and that fashion is accused of, which are all true, by the way, that we're filling up the landfills. There right. may be little children working in factories in Vietnam or in Indonesia or in Bangladesh making clothes for you uh, that you're buying here. Um, or that uh, the clothes are not sustainable, people are buying too much. All of that is true. And all of that can be solved with technology by creating a lot of transparency across the supply chain. So that's where we come in. We, we provide a technology platform for mills, factories, uh, literally as upstream as the farmers to interact with the brands mm -hmm. that want products made by these people and make sure that it's done in a sustainable, transparent love way. Love that part of it. Well, and I love the transparency piece of this. We have spent so much time. I mean, if we think about our big themes yeah. of 2019, uh, you know, Fashionopolis, Dana Thomas's great book right. about fast fashion and everything yes. bad, candidly, that yes. that's done and all the sort of bad will that it's engendered in a whole uh, category of the population, I have to think that lack of transparency, though, existed for a reason. People yes. didn't want uh, you to know how hard was it to sort of crack into this. So you're exactly right. Today, the fashion supply chain has about 20 players, uh, and you only need five of them, which means that about 14 or 15 of those guys or girls are just there because they're they are agents. They're agents, they're traders, they're not adding a lot of value in the value chain. So they're really either hoarding inventory That's or they're amazing. money lenders. So I, I, sorry, I just want to go back actually. to that. So it's like there, there are 20 and there need yeah. to be five. Yeah. Incredible. Exactly. Yeah. So about 15 of them don't like us a lot, but the five that are adding value, we're adding an immense amount of value to their business yeah. and just economics and then making sure that they are uh, held accountable if they're not following the right But practices. to Jason's point, like how tough was it like making your inroads and so on and so forth? Because I feel like it's such an established yeah. supply chain or supply you know, that was out there. How tough was it to do this? Actually, once you go beyond the big manufacturers and you really go into the world of Asian manufacturers, 
manufacturing or uh, South American manufacturing or even right here in the US, it's quite fragmented. Huh. So, uh, you know, most of fast fashion is made within a very fragmented manufacturer base. And then once you start giving them technology and bringing them online, it becomes much more easy for them to find their suppliers and their buyers and, you know, transact without agents in the middle. Right. So uh, it's it's maybe it's hard in the beginning to get a critical mass in a new uh, country or in, in a new area or in a new in you know subcategory like denims or or something. But once you do it, there is so much of a network effect uh, that it spreads quite fast because businesses see the value very quickly. I wonder about the trade war, specifically the U.S.-China trade war, yeah. and what that has done for your business. So uh, what's interesting is that I think uh, there has been definitely a lot of volatility, uh, or at least the fear of what might happen in the minds of brands the world over. And many of whom that sourced uh, a majority of their products from China, today want to diversify that portfolio a lot. So they want us to, uh, you know, they, they're not saying no China. They're saying, hey, can you de-risk my business right. by helping me understand how I should source and from where and making that transparent along the way. We're hearing that from a lot of the yeah. CEOs we talk about, that they want right. to be having kind of manufacturing in the markets that they sell. They want to, as you said, deleverage that risk. Exactly. Yeah, some optionality, yeah, obviously. Absolutely. Um, so as you build your business, where are you now? Fresh infusion of capital. You're growing like mm -hmm. crazy. Yes. What does 2020 look like? Uh, I think 2020 is going to be super exciting for us. We uh, recently launched in the United States. Uh, we've started working with brands uh, over here. We're now just recently started working with manufacturers in the U.S. as well. Huh. Um, so it's it's uh, looking like uh, 2020 is going to be very, very busy because we do have a business in eight countries in Asia as well. <laughs> Right. And uh, while I spend most of my time between Singapore and New York, now we have an office in L.A. Uh, and we have lots of customers there. So it looks like it's going to be a crazy, exciting year. Thank you. What well, were saying? Well, I was just going to say, it is interesting, sort of this idea of a man, American manufacturing. L.A. does seem to be mm -hmm. a little bit of the center of that. Yes. And yet... Even the American manufacturing is not immune to some of the issues that we've run into overseas. Exactly. So, in fact, uh, uh, it, it's a myth that uh, those problems don't exist in the U.S. as well. Um, maybe, uh, maybe the practices are better, but they're not exactly optimized. Yeah. Uh, we can use a lot more technology here as well. We can use a lot more transparency, digitization. Uh, you know, QC and line efficiency tools can be automated. Uh, so, there's a lot that can be done and uh, it was a bit of a surprise to me personally when I came in and saw that there was just there was just so much to be done even domestically here in the US but now it seems in like a very exciting world, right? in the developed world right yeah. yeah. I have to ask you cuz I love talking to folks like you because I feel like you're traveling the world you're seeing smaller business mid-sized businesses all kinds of businesses what's the global economy look like I think uh, you know despite um, despite every fear that people have uh, in their minds right now about where the economy is are going, where the economy is going. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity in the adversities that we're seeing as well. So, of course, this is a very colored view from my viewpoint where, you know, um, on the one hand, we're saying uh, we've hit peak apparel and really people should be right. consuming less and yeah. uh, consuming better. All of that seems like such a huge opportunity to us uh, because consumers are starting to ask questions and hold brands and businesses responsible. It's the conversations we've had. Um, which is exactly 
basically where we come in and say right. to the brand that, listen, you don't know how to do this. That's okay because, you know, we're going to help you. We're going to help you. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you can be transparent. You can be sustainable. And maybe you don't have to sell 50 items. Maybe you sell 10 and the economics can still be good for you. Exactly. And Kitty Bowes, did I say it right? Yes. Good. And Kitty Bowes is the co-founder and CEO of Zolingo, joining us here at the Bloomberg 50. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Nice really appreciate it. Thanks. Good luck. That is so much, I feel like, it's, our world this I year. I know. It's great. <laughs> I know. I mean, it really is the, the perfect summation exactly. uh, in many ways because I have, you know, I've been reading so much of Dana Thomas's work. She's been yeah. on the show uh, a couple times and, you know, it is really affecting people's behavior. I know, you know, we talk about talking about it all the time with our kids yes. and sort of the decisions that they're making. I was thinking about it even when I was thinking about like, what do I want for Christmas? What do you know? Yeah. What do I want Debbie Kelly to buy me for Christmas? <laughs> what and, does you know, <laughs> I need to, you know, have a certain amount of, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I need to be thinking about these things in terms of my own closet. But I think, and Katie made a good point, that, you know, as a manufacturer, she said, it doesn't mean the fashion industry has to fall apart. But right. maybe, you know, I think about how I grew up. My mother was by quality and spend money on good, good stuff. You don't need to have a lot, you know. Right. And I think we're going back. I think we're kind of fully, you know, coming back around to that way of thinking. And I definitely agree. Your your kids, I know my daughter, she wants to know what the company stands for, right. what's the impact on the environment. And I think we're going to see more of that. And if you and I are starting to jump on board on that, we old folks. I know. <laughs> Older. Or, or youngish. I like to think of us as youngish. You no? Yeah, I'm fine with youngish. Yeah, exactly. Let's go with that. Uh, no, I mean, it is interesting. And, and it's a way that certainly it's will important. impact. I mean, to me... One of the most interesting things that Ankiti said was this notion that the supply chain has about 15 too many people in it. Yes. That's crazy. But it also just shows how successful she's been because they're, if she's able to crack that, yeah. incredible. Well, that's what I was curious about because I feel like these industries are so well established yeah. and that when somebody comes in with a new idea... But when it makes, like, I just think about our world in terms of online and the internet, whether it's being able to go, you know, to Amazon directly or pick your other online retailer and kind of cut out a lot of things that we used to do before, it really makes a difference. And it's really um, certainly something that we all are taking part of. So let's get our to our next guest. guest. Yes, our last guest. Um, Bloomberg Business Week has named Seema Hingarani as one of the people to watch in 2020. We're already thinking about next year. She's the founder and chair of the nonprofit Girls Who Invest. It's dedicated to increasing the number of women in portfolio management and leadership in the asset management industry. So nice to have you here with us. Yay, go. Thank you for having me. It's you wonderful to be here. You guys have been around for a couple of years, and you've had a lot of success and made some inroads. You are getting more women out there. Yeah, it's been fantastic. In four years, we've put through 350 college women through our 10-week on-campus summer program, where that's four weeks of training in the classroom and then a six-week paid internship at one of the leading asset manager firms in the world. It's been incredible, and 80% of those women are staying in the investment business. They're staying. Are they moving up the ladder? They are. That's it's great. fantastic. Well, and Seema, one of the things that I, I love talking to you about is the fact you were on the other side of the table. You were you were distributing money in some ways. You were picking a manager, so you saw that from the other side of the table. Why has it taken so long for the rest of the world to sort of get on board with this? You know, I, I, I think it's just coming up and, and saying, you know, maybe we ought to rethink this. Yeah. We've been having trouble recruiting women in particular into our business, uh, and yet 
we do the same thing over and over again. So when I talk to a lot of the large investment firms around the world, I would ask them, so what do you do when you recruit? And they would say to me, oh, we go to these four colleges. Right. And we go to these investment banking programs. And I thought, well, you guys, no wonder we're having a problem with diversity. Right. Let's go bigger, broader. And so, fine, I'll do the work. I'll go find women across the entire country, from colleges all across the U.S., with different majors of study, different ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, and I'll run a program through the summer, and we'll train them up so that when we send them to you for these internships, they hit the ground running. Seema, I do wonder, though, if there's something different, because I feel like there's been a lot of talk for years about getting more women into kind of the financial industry. Is there something that's changed in the last couple of years? Is it finally understanding that the studies and the importance of diversification, that it makes a difference in terms of financial difference, that all of a sudden everybody's awakened? Yes, I think that's right. I think um, while the research has been out there, there's more research that shows and proves that more gender diverse teams get better outcomes. There's actually research now that shows that more mixed gender investment teams get better investment results, which goes to the heart of Girls Who Invest and what we're trying to do. And I think honestly in this country now with movements such as Time's Up and hashtag Me Too, it's certainly raised uh, you know, more attention on this issue and more firms are paying attention. And I think the final push has really come from the big institutional investors. Yeah. So you now have big public pension plans in mm -hmm. particular saying to these investment managers, you know, if you don't have more diversity on your investment team, I've read the research too and I believe the research. I don't believe you will get long-term consistent investment returns. So I might pull my money from you and put it across the street. Huge. I'm so glad you brought that up because mm -hmm. it feels like that's what has to happen. And again, going back to uh, your time in New York City, like the money has to speak here. Like the that nothing's going to change. I mean, we talk about this with ESG as well. You know, until the source of yeah. the money essentially says no or change, nothing's going to happen. So you think that that is starting to happen? Yes, and, and certainly it's a combination. I mean, there are amazing leaders in our industry who do get it, and I've been trying to push. Yeah. To get it as broad-based as we need it to get. Yes, we're going to have to have the big investors out there saying. This isn't going to work. And standing up and actually pulling their capital and putting it yeah. elsewhere. So much of what you're doing is creating that pipeline. And I do think that's so important. But you, you, we got to make sure that there's the support along the way. And that really speaks to a company's culture and making sure that there's those folks to do that. So how do we get to that? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Is it just by getting more and more women into the industry or what? Well, so that's part of it. Um, you know, back when I was at the city of New York and I was the CIO and I had these conversations with the leaders of the business. Yeah. Um, and I'd look down at their organizational charts and say, you guys, where are all the women on your investment right. team? Right. Um, and so what they would say to me is, well, we don't get resumes from women. So clearly a pipeline issue, which I agreed. Maybe we do have that and let's fix that. But I did say to them then, you know, I'd like to have the other part of the conversation. No judging, no blaming. But there's still firms out there in our business that have cultures that are not so welcoming to yep. women. So let's have that conversation, too, and tackle it from both ends, make a lot more progress a lot faster. So what I'm really encouraged by now is we are sitting down with the leadership of the industry and, and talking about their cultures. That's great. And why is it that once these women come in, they don't stay? And how do we help get these women 
to a position where they're getting promoted for these new opportunities, new growth opportunities that right now they're not really getting put in those positions. Hallelujah. Absolutely. Great, great, great point to, to end. end. Thank you so much. Seema Hingarani, she is um, the founder and chair of the nonprofit Girls Who Invest. It's a great organization. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good luck in 2020. All Thanks right. Very well, much. on with the show. <laughs> that was a quick 60 it minutes. It was a very quick 60 minutes. We are off to co-host the dinner. Yes, we uh, are. Now we're going to be on stage with Joel Weber honoring all these great people. Uh, we're having a great time. I do love it. It's smart conversations. It's people from all walks of life. And what's really wonderful is you can also get a little bit more of this on our weekend show on Bloomberg Business Week Radio and Bloomberg Business Week TV. We're going to be talking about it tomorrow on our daily show as well. Tune in. This is Bloomberg Business Week.